Ever since the invention of the camera, people have taken pictures of a subject that is forever frozen in time. And sometimes people take pictures to purposefully stage a moment from a different time. And maybe it was a time before cameras were ever invented. We'll learn about such a man who wanted to look at an older world through the lens of a camera. They say that when he passed away in 1941, he was $100,000 in debt. And listen to the stories of the woman who worked for him. He would stroll up one side of the room with his hands clasped behind his back and down the other side, and a low voice would say, very nice, at each desk. Stay tuned after this. Welcome to Object Obscura. This is the historical investigative podcast about people, objects, and their stories. I'm your host, Thatcher Warakas. Episode 9, Picture, Painter, Pilgrims. Like the last episode, this object rests behind the confines of glass and a frame. There's a picture, but the size of a playing card, stuck onto a white mat. The frame is maybe 7 by 9, much larger than the small photo encased in glass. It was hanging on the wall of a Tucson antique shop, and it looked like an anomaly. It's a black and white photo but with splotches of color. And it seems to be a picture of people from the 18th century in period clothing. It's so intriguing. In the small picture, two women are sitting on Windsor chairs, making a quilt near the fireplace in a pre-colonial home. There are candles, baskets, and braided rugs in the room. This picture is in a frame that looks as old as the period depicted in the photo. It's a black painted frame that is very beat up on every side. Below the photograph rests a signature, one that feels disassociated with the picture above. I knew the name started with a W, but I couldn't read the last part. I decided to use a new piece of technology on my iPhone to find some answers. It's called Google Lens, a feature inside the Google Photos app. It lets you take any pictures of people, places, objects, and even signatures, and it scans the internet for anything that looks similar. So, I took a picture of my photograph, and dots appeared. Oscillating over the photo as it scanned through Google's ever-growing 10 billion image library. Then it finished, and links appeared. One had a thumbnail image of a picture with a similar look. And below, it had the same signature. It was Wallace Nutting. I looked back at my photo and realized the signature read W. Nutting. I had a lot of questions, some I didn't even know how to ask. Um, My name is Linda Palmer, and I collect Wallace Nutting. Linda is not only a collector of Wallace Nutting pictures, but was a nurse and a real estate broker. In my research, Linda popped up because of a new book she wrote called Wallace Nutting, 
father of the colonial revival movement. I went deeper into the Wallace Nutting world and realized how dedicated collectors were to his photographs. He has some pictures of himself, a white-haired suited man with a pointed nose and thin glasses. Linda told me the very first time she heard of Mr. Nutting. My grandmother um, gave me my first Wallace Nutting picture, and it was called Slack Water, and I researched that it was taken somewhere in Connecticut. Linda became a nurse while she was still adding to her Nutting collection. I lost my father uh, to lung cancer, and he was only 60. And I uh, also lost my mother to breast cancer. So I decided to uh, become a nurse at the age of 50. I like to think the way that Linda got her nursing degree later in life is similar to the pull to find new passions, like Wallace Nutting. She didn't get fully immersed into Mr. Nutting until after she retired from nursing. I understood this when I finished her book. She's not trained as a historian or a writer, but was determined to write a book about a complex man, Mr. Wallace Nutting. Wallace Nutting really, his first love was being a congregational minister. The story of this colonial photo starts in the religious walls of a church specifically the Belleville Avenue Congressional Church in Newark, New Jersey. He started working there as a pastor in 1888, in his late 20s. This was actually a big year for Mr. Nutting. He had just finished three years at Harvard and one year at a theological seminary. And after that, he fell in love with the idea of becoming a minister. This was also the year he got married to Mariette Griswold. His wife, Mariette, was a perfect match, and she stayed with him until the very end. Marriott was a gardener, and uh, she was really the woman behind the success of Wallace Nutting. She was born in Buckland, Massachusetts, eight years before Wallace Nutting. She had three other siblings and was born an aristocrat, as her father was the town clerk. Her sister Anna died at 26 years old, leaving her sister's husband, Albert Caswell, and a four-year-old with no maternal guidance. She married Mr. Caswell, her brother-in-law, and raised her nephew until she met Mr. Nutting. I mention all of this backstory here because Mr. Nutting's early life was complicated in very different ways. He was born in 1861, at the dawn of the Civil War, in Rock Bottom, Massachusetts. That city is now known as Marlboro. The Civil War period is important here because his father, Albion Nutting, enlisted in the Union Army in 1862, and two years later, he died of dysentery at 36 years of age. Wallace was not even three years old before his father passed. Albion was a craftsman who not only did machine work, but built their home in 1861. Before Albion's death, he had a daughter named Edith, two years older than Wallace. There was one gift that he kept from his father, a Bible. It was given to him on Christmas Day of 1862. Inside, his father wrote, To my baby boy Wallace, may it teach him to follow the great captain of our salvation. And that he did. He worked a lot doing lectures, sermon work, and preaching from the pulpit. Throughout his life, Mr. Nutting was a minister in New Jersey, Minnesota, Washington State, Connecticut, Maine, New York, and Rhode Island. It was a lot for him to handle. Here's Linda again. So the churches that he preached in as a congregational minister, they loved him. He just exhausted himself. This was a man who already had a long list of ailments, one of them being neurasthenia, a mental condition that affects mood and depression. His health was failing. He suffered from vertigo. 
and he had a loss of hearing. By 1904, his health was declining, and something needed to change. His wife, Marriott, was by his side in the darkest of days, even when he suffered a nervous breakdown and quit the church in Rhode Island. It is the saddest irony that his preachings about health and prosperity were making him more ill. He would write a different sermon every single week, and he put so much of himself in, he just needed to get into nature, so he took up photography. The origin of his very first photo is unclear, but we do know that Mr. Nutting started taking pictures with his own camera in 1897. He had also just traveled to the Middle East after retiring from the ministry. His wife, Marriott Nutting, suggested that he do something healthy, go for a a bicycle ride, and he took his camera with him. And um, that's how it started. These trips on his bicycle were the start of something magical. He would take his wife, some friends, or go alone and snap pictures of anything beautiful outside. He loved apple trees, and he loved water, just the beauty of nature. Those were the first pictures that he started taking. Then it drifted into animals. He lived right next door to Roger Williams Park. There were sheep that grazed over there, and he would take pictures of the sheep. I returned back to my small photo, the one with the two women sewing quilts in the fireplace. I had learned a lot about the early life of the man who signed it, but not about the place or people in the photo. It's like this small magnetic portal that my eyes drift towards, wanting to know what was going on when it was taken. All right, ready? I'd reached out to some historians and Wallace Nutting enthusiasts. The one question I asked them was if they recognized the photo I had. Where was it taken? What was it called? And who were the women in the photo? Throughout my research, I saw tons of headlines about Wallace Nutting's mystique. Historians, collectors, and archivists have actually tried to find the secrets of Mr. Nutting's pictures. He rarely ever disclosed the locations or names of people in his pictures. This made collectors, like Linda, search far and wide to find the truth behind each photo. I parked in the church parking lot and got out and looked across the street And there was one of the homes that Wallace Nutting photographed in Connecticut Beautiful. These States Beautiful books were collections of his pictures and drawings around the New England area, including books of Ireland and England. Linda told me another time she was tracking down a house from his main beautiful book. She found the house, took a picture, and met the woman who lived there. That is what I want to do with my photograph. So I started with some of the Wallace Nutting museums still open, the ones that haven't been torn down. The Webb Dean Stevens Museum was a home with a rich history. When I sent a picture of my framed photo to a curator there, he said that it wasn't from the Webb House. But he said that my photograph was a mass-produced, hand-colored picture. That would explain those splotches of color on the black and white photo. I suspect, um, Thatcher, that your picture was actually colored at his very first picture and furniture factory in the Old Scott Mill in Saugus, Massachusetts. Not only was it possibly colored in Saugus, but it was taken there. It's a small town about 20 minutes north of Boston. 
you can see the furniture in the picture. Uh, there's a fire in the fireplace. There's a corner chair. There's a beam ceiling. It's just a, a beautiful photograph. From this description, she told me it was taken in the kitchen of the Broad Hearth home on the Saugus Ironworks property. When Mr. Nutting started taking pictures of people and architecture after 1910, he gave his home special names. There's a lot of history, Thatcher, behind your picture. I just had no idea how much history there was, or how many homes he was taking pictures in. He purchased and restored five uh, historic properties, and your picture was taken in one of those properties, the Saugus Ironworks. These five historical properties were called the Colonial Chain of Picture Houses. The first home was the um, Wentworth Gardner House in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And uh, the second house was the Hayes. She lists all five houses, the Saugus Ironworks being the fourth in the series, bought in 1915. The Webb House, where I sent my first email to, was the fifth home in this colonial chain, one he apparently bought for only $1. He wanted to preserve the colonial revival period so that we wouldn't lose a lot of our history. I saw that this was a running motif for the preacher turned photographer. He wanted to take pictures of a time before new technologies, industrialization, and the new world. He really just wanted to preserve a lot of the history that we were losing at that time. He was a historic preservationist, and he was afraid that we were losing a lot of our American history. So the catalyst of these pictures started from a man afraid to let the future take hold of times soon to be forgotten. His preservation of American history was to photograph the unsoiled world, from the spontaneous nature scenes to the stage photos of women in period clothing. But why did he choose the pre-colonial 1700s? Most of his stage photos represent the life of women 200 years in the past from when they were taken. But this was not uncommon. Stage photos like these during the early 20th century were becoming popular. What set Nutting apart was that he was the most prolific. He did greeting cards and calendars and little pin trays. Uh, he did mirrors, but his pictures were his, his top sellers. They hung in almost yeah. every American home. This is not an exaggeration. It is estimated he took over 50,000 pictures in 26 states and 13 foreign countries. Many of his pictures were printed in different sizes, and over 10 million were printed by the 1930s. Since buying this picture in 2020, I have seen a nutting photograph in almost every antique shop throughout the United States. I want to learn about the place and people that made this eclectic empire grow into a successful business. In Linda's book, there's a section of every known person who worked for Mr. Nutting from 1904 until his death in 1941. Hand colorists, models, chauffeurs, cabinet makers, you name it. And the pages following were primary source transcriptions of stories from the colorists themselves. I've hired some voice actors to recreate their stories. Margaret Hennessy, colorist at Newburyport and Saugus, Wallace Nutting Collectors Club newsletter, fall 1989. Until 1916, life had been prosaic and boring. Punching a typewriter and taking dictation for nine hours a day. Margaret, who was born in 1898, lived with her Irish parents in Boston. She is talking about her life as a stenographer, which she did not like. 
But due to the failure in the place I worked, life became one of happiness and beauty because I had the good fortune to become one of the 150 employees of Wallace Nutting, dabbling in paint for the next eight years. Margaret is not actually accredited at working in Saugus. She started in the Newburyport home. But from this account, she remembers a lot of Nutting's property dealings before and after her work there. In the Newburyport house, the novelty wore off and the house and the furnishings were sold and we had to move to Saugus, where he had purchased an old mill and had renovated it extensively. So the purchase of the Saugus Ironworks was done in March of 1915. In two years, Mr. Nutting had updated some parts of the nine-acre property. Here's Linda again. Wallace Nutting used the same historic architect, Henry Charles Dean, for all five of his properties. The renovations he made in Saugus were special because he was opening new businesses. He added sections to the home called Broad Hearth and added a cottage for his ironworker, Mr. Edward Guy. The Saugus Ironworks already had an iron mill on the property. It was actually the first one ever in America's history. It was the first uh, ironworks in the United States, uh, and it was actually founded by John Winthrop the Younger. It operated uh, from 1646 to around 1670. It is amazing to me that he found a place that was built in the time period he was recreating in his pictures. He'd actually staked out a lot prior, but his wife didn't want him to leave the Framingham home. The story of why he was even told to buy Saugus is quite fascinating. I understand that William Sumner Appleton uh, encouraged Wallace Nutting to purchase the Saugus Arn Works because his great-great-grandfather uh, had built the property. Mr. Appleton was the founder of the Spina, now historic New England, and knew that Nutting was the right man for the Saugus Ironworks property. Mr. Appleton's great-great-grandfather was Samuel Appleton, who built the ironworks in the 1680s, 10 years after the early colonial pilgrim Winthrop the Younger left. Saugus is also the home of the ironworks, which he established employing Mr. Guy, well known for his artistry. It's still a great attraction for visitors. Edward Guy was a talented ironworker who made hardware, lighting, and candlesticks. His 10-year-old niece was actually a model for Mr. Nutting. Another way Nutting made money was to make each home an attraction, like a museum. Then he had his furniture and antique dealings. This is when his businesses skyrocketed. He was um, recognized as one of the uh, top antique collectors in the country. His furniture treasury came out. One estimate shows that by 1915, he was making $1,000 a day. Most people may actually be familiar with Wallace Nutting because of his old-fashioned furniture. Windsor chairs, armoires, chests, tables, clocks. His first furniture factory was built in 1917 when he bought the Old Scott Mill on the Saugus property. He would use these props made by other people in his photos. His wooden furniture, iron made by Mr. Guy, and the braided rugs made by his wife, Marriott. He changed the furniture and change the models in different pictures. So you never knew how he was going to compose the picture. Many of these props, however, were not necessarily from the period he was recreating. It was more for aesthetics. In my research, I found he took many Saugus snapshots. Now, the Saugus Ironworks is part of the National Park Service. 
and online there are pictures of the Broadhurst home. One stood out to me. A life-sized woman mannequin sits in a chair that was taken in the same kitchen as the one for my photo. The name of that picture was Affectionately Yours. Affectionately Yours, which is a picture that they've uh, recreated at the Saugus Arn Works, uh, is, is very similar, but it has one girl in it. I called the Saugus Iron Works and spoke to their historian. From the description of a colorist, she said that the woman in Affectionately Yours was Daisy Ryder, a young model who was Mr. Nutting's favorite. I found that colorist, whose description helped the National Park Service recreate the scene. Gertrude Brown, Transcripts of a Letter to Justin Monroe, Wallace Nutting Collectors Club, 1974. Esther Swenson sat right behind me. Also, Daisy Ryder, who was Mr. Nutting's model at the time. She was a blonde and wore hair piled high in her pictures. She was in many of the colonial and some garden scenes. This is Gertrude Flood, who later remarried, who was a colorist at Framingham in the early years. She remembers sitting in the same room as Daisy Ryder, most likely before the move to Saugus. When I spoke with the Saugus Ironworks historian, she stated that there is a slight chance the woman to the right of my photo is Miss Ryder. And the other woman could be Mr. Nutting's wife, Marriott. But these are just speculations. The reason why it is so hard to pin down the true identities of the Wallace Nutting models is because he never referred to them as models. He would call them, quote, friends who enter with Mr. Nutting into the joy of production, end quote. The colorists, however, did not need to have a specific look, just a good eye. Gertrude Brown was one of those colorists who started working with him in 1914. Here's the most detailed account of the process used for Mr. Nutting's pictures by Miss Brown in Framingham. The coloring section of the studio was on the top floor of a two-story building and had a big skylight on the roof, which was our main source of light and was covered with a large sheeting-like curtain. These colorists at Framingham were turning out a lot of picture prints. Most of the time, they stayed longer in the popular seasons. Wedding and Christmas seasons were our busiest ones, and then we would work longer in the day, weather permitting. We could not paint by electric light, so late fall and winter we had to stop work early, 4 to 4.30 p.m., or even earlier if it was too dark to color. This system was how he managed to have every picture colored. They used watercolor paints from England, Windsor and Newton. But this was the early days of photography and new developments were changing. Here's Linda again. It is printed on platinum paper, which according to Nutting, it's one of the best ways of developing photographs. He would take a picture of a stage scene on a glass negative that was then transferred onto the platinum paper the final form is a platinotype picture. Mr. Nutting worked with the head colorist, writing instructions in the model guidebook for every single photo. These colorists would then have to match the colors from this book as closely as possible. The model picture file was along one wall in the room, and after getting our prints to work on, we had to look in the file for the model picture. Every single Wallace Nutting picture was hand-colored by one of his painters, meaning that no two pictures are exactly alike. The same is true about the signatures. Some other colorists recalled that the painters with the most steady hand would sign his pictures. 
but it was sometimes his right-hand man, Mr. Donnelly. These photos were printed on proof sheets. Depending on the demand, Mr. Nunning printed many different sizes of the same photo, each ranged in price from about $1.50 to $20. The picture I have is the smallest he printed, 2 by 3 which meant that there were more pictures on a proof sheet. The processing and sizing of the prints was also done in the building, and many days when we came to work, the smell of banana oil, it was very strong, and we knew prints would soon be coming upstairs to be colored. But with the shortage of platinum uh, during World War One, he had to size the photographs uh, with amyl acetate or banana oil. At the same time of Nutting's booming business was the outbreak of World War I, but he found new ways to adapt. He moved his photography studio to Saugus, where Linda thinks mine was colored. The studio moved to Saugus after I had married, and I didn't work coloring again till in the 1920s. Gertrude married in December of 1916 and left for a couple of years. This was actually a common pattern most of the colorists faced. When I talked with Linda about her book, she surprised me with something I wasn't expecting. I actually met Gertie Brown, and she signed one of my books for me. This is the Gertrude you've heard stories from. Most likely, they met in the 1970s, when Linda was starting to gather more research in the Wallace Nutting Collectors Club. She actually um, had some of the watercolors that she had used. It is amazing that people have met these colorists. Now, 105 years later, I hope to keep their stories alive. They describe it like sitting in a schoolroom with uh, your head colorist at the head of the room and you all had desks. Another colorist recalls that each woman was paid around $12 to $18 a week. And most of the women who worked for Wallace Nutting, like Gertrude Brown, were unmarried in the beginning and later left when they were married or had kids. Sometimes the constant studio changes hindered new employment. His studios were usually of five-year duration, and at the end of this period in Saugus was no exception. He sold Saugus in 1920 to an antiques dealer and moved to Ashland, 45 minutes from Saugus in central Massachusetts. Linda told me that I should take out the backing in the original frame. She mentioned that sometimes the colorists would actually put their initials on the back of the photos they colored. With white gloves, I carefully pulled everything out and was face-to-face with the picture. I pulled it back gently, as the top part was glued to the white mat, and I saw two penciled initials. M.P. I asked some of the historians who they thought that could be. Sometimes the colorists signed their initials with their maiden names before they married. It could be Marion Pop, Maude Phillips, or Mary Pendexter. The initials, however, do not definitively tell us who hand-colored this picture. There is something else on the front side of the photograph that broke this mystery wide open. This is Linda again. I I think your best bet of learning the title of this picture would be to go to the copyright division of the Library of Congress. Most of Nutting's pictures were numbered and titled. In the smaller ones, he wouldn't put the name on the front, so I had to look for it online. I scoured through lists of copyrighted material from 1915 to 1920, the years that he owned Saugus. I found it in the 1916 copyright list. My picture was titled An Informal Call, printed and copyrighted at Framingham, then later colored at Saugus. And my picture was a minuscule copyright mark on the bottom left corner under a leg of his Windsor chair. Copyright WN 1916. 
During his Saugus days, he became interested in antiques, buying all 32 original Windsor chairs, which he copied, selling the original until all was sold. Mr. Nutting was extremely autistic, but not a businessman. This was very true. Into the 1920s after Saugus, his other businesses were floundering. People had stopped going to his museums. There was massive rationing, and some of the materials he needed were running low. It costs so much money for Wallace Nutting to reproduce authentic uh, American antiques. He made a lot of money on his pictures, but then lost it with the furniture business. My picture has told a much deeper story than I expected. It is just as much about Mr. Nutting as it is about the colorists and models. One of the greatest joys of being a historian is to find sources that shine a light on what life was like or what it actually was for certain people. These first-hand accounts give us a glimpse at the environment, daily atmosphere, and personal feelings at these picture houses. Mr. Nutting was strict and had a temper, but was kind to the models and colorists. Mr. Nutting was a very kind and humane man. He would stroll up one side of the room with his hands clasped behind his back and down the other side and in a low voice would say very nice at each desk. Some of the other colorists remember a more stifling environment. At that time, we were not supposed to talk aloud much, and when the room did get a bit noisy, we would hear, Quiet, please, from the head colorist. To let off steam when the colorist stayed late, Mr. Nunning would allow them to have parties in certain seasons. One of which I remember, a Halloween party in which a joke was played on the four teachers. Margaret describes this prank where they blindfolded colorists and told them to avoid drinking glasses on the ground that were never actually there. We were cheered on by squeals of laughter. (laughs) Some women actually took photos together. Gertrude recalls taking pictures of all the colorists under a tree. She's actually in one of them from 1915. These women grew closer to their job due to the special connection they had with Mr. Nutting. Here's Margaret again. When he moved his studio to Saugus, the word got around that he was fond of donuts. And all of the housewives who were expert cooks vied with one another to make the best, descending upon him at his arrival with a box of the tasty morsels. He had a very gluttonous diet, but he always remained tall and lean. Margaret remembers times he would walk around the studio. With four donuts, one on each of four fingers, twirling them, saying, this is my dinner. This urge to overindulge, might be a response to his early adulthood. After his sister passed away when she was 18, Mr. Nutting lived in poverty in freezing cold Minneapolis winters. His pictures represented what he wanted to see in the world. It was also what his New England audiences wanted. Peaceful, bright, idyllic mountains and calming indoor photos. Nothing like his upbringing. By the 1930s, his businesses were in need of help. He actually turned to J.P. Morgan Jr., the famous millionaire's son. Fortunately, um, J. Pierpoint Morgan uh, purchased that collection, which... Linda is talking about the furniture he sold for $140,000. It was the finest Pilgrim Century furniture collection in the country. This was a tough time for Mr. Nutting. He had to liquidate his antiques and sued many people for mishandling funds, and even some who printed fake pictures with his name. It is a fact he made a million dollars. But due to his many ventures and his very high wages, the money soon slipped away and he had to call for help. Margaret describes his downfall when he called some businessmen in Chicago. They didn't know anything about art and mishandled almost 30 years of photography and furniture. 
The result? Loss of business, combined with the vogue, then, of playing walls. Mr. Nutting, however, accomplished a lot in his life. He had not only created a successful picture business, but authored many books, including his autobiography. Wallace Nutting died in 1941. From the start of one war to the start of another, he had experienced a lot in his life. They say that when he passed away in 1941, he was $100,000 in debt. His wife, Marriott, helped the last workers deal with the business until her death in 1944. He was 79, and his wife lived to 91. He willed his picture business to a head colorist and a right-hand man. Gertrude Brown actually continued working as a netting colorist until 1942, after his death. Although Margaret left in the mid-20s, she remembered her life as a netting colorist very fondly, especially in this interaction when she met him in the 1930s. The word lecture comes to mind, one he gave at the Boston Public Library years later, which I attended. After speaking, I approached him, saying I was a former employee of his. But being very deaf, I don't think he heard me, or he thanked me. In his last years, he gave speeches, talks, sermons, and shared many of his collections with the people he met. He was awarded an honorary doctorate certification in 1938. He lived in Framingham, the same town where his picture business started, until his death. I am sure Mr. Nutting is reaping the rewards of his efforts and his contributions to the world, which has been made richer for having known this man. It was a rich history lesson for me, too. I was glad I spoke to Linda Palmer and was able to reenact the stories of two Massachusetts colorists, Gertrude Brown and Margaret Hennessy. Thank you for joining us on another Object Obscure Journey, where every object has a story. This was a production of the Obscurity Podcast Network. Thank you to Linda B. Palmer for sharing her knowledge. Please order and read her 2021 book called Wallace Nutting, Father of the Colonial Revival Movement on Amazon. Voice of Margaret Hennessy, done by Shannon Warwick. Voice of Gertrude Brown, done by Jenny Brick. Special thanks to the historians and collectors I emailed. Dr. Emily Murphy, Richard Malley, Michael and Susan Ivankovich, and Dr. Marianne Berger-Woods. Additional thanks to Jim Eckert and Etc. Antiques. If you know anything else about who the women are in Informal Call, or know who the colorist MP was, then send me an email at thatcher at object-obscura.com. I also wrote an article about my research in the summer edition of the Wallace Nutting Collectors Club newsletter. You can become a member if you're interested at wallacenutting.org. This was an Anchor Distributed Podcast, written, edited, scored, mixed, and fact-checked by me. The theme song is Behind the Walls by my great friend Nathany. Check out her amazing music on Spotify and Apple Music. She does solo stuff with the name Nathany and has a group called SCN. All other song and archival credits are in the description. Go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and give us a rating. I love feedback. It's what helps the show get better. You can also give us a donation. There's a PayPal donation button on our website, object-obscura.com. Anything helps us to investigate more amazing stories in the future. We hope that we can travel to meet each person face-to-face in future episodes. 
Want to reach out to us? Well, send us some messages on Facebook at Object Obscura Podcast, Instagram at Object.Obscura, and Twitter at Object Obscura. It can be about an object you want discussed on the show or about anything obscure. I will post all the pictures of this episode's object and people you heard voices from on each platform. Next episode comes out in one week, October 1st. Here's a dark clue about a fake and fishy business. Art is not a regulated business and people get away with murder. See you then.